Thank you. So, so, so the question is why the title of the Magna Carta? When I, I really battled writing the book. Um, I'm sure you've heard that from many other authors. But it's incredibly difficult to distill a series of thoughts into a single idea, and then from that idea, to communicate it with crystal clarity. In, part of my problem is that I have five books in one. So I almost had to decide which book to write. Um, because once I decided that, I then kind of knew which angle or which way to go. So, so why the Magna Carta? Because if, if you're not aware, we live in a very interesting time. And the world will never be as it is today. And, and part of the reason why that is, is because our relationship with each other and our relationship with the world is based on ideas, models, thinking, knowledge, institutions that are dated. So I, I spent a long time in my life studying management, for instance. The very study of management comes from war. We first had to manage people in the instance of war. So the general needed a complex system to make sure that he could push the troops in a specific direction to achieve a specific end. Strategy, tactics, comes from the study of management. But if you are in business today, you also know that how we manage is dated. So, so, so what employees, for instance, are telling large employers is that maybe I actually don't want to rock up and work at eight, and leave at five. Is that just because I'm present doesn't mean I'm productive, right? Entrepreneurs are saying to large institutions, maybe I actually, you know, if, if I'm Amazon, or Amazon, perhaps a poor example, if I'm WhatsApp, maybe I can get to a $15 billion valuation with just employing 50 people. I mean, they got to a $15 billion valuation with 50 people. That's 200 billion rand. Employing 50 people, that's, that's insane. So, so the way we have thought about building businesses, institutions, even the very instance of government, the way we govern, the way we live our lives is changing. Um, and as a result, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm coming to answer your question. So, 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 so as a result, I, uh, I'm very privileged, I've done exceptionally well, God has been very kind to me. So I live in arguably the most exclusive estate in the country. But if I drive out of my estate and I turn right, Less than three minutes later, I'm in the poorest part of Joburg. That kind of disparity is not sustainable. Now, what I do to protect myself, as I imagine all of you here do, that's why we're all here speaking nice Queen's English, isn't it? Is what I do to protect myself is I've got very nice high walls, I run electric voltage above my walls, I have two very big pit bulls, I have an armed security company, etc., etc. But the point is, sooner or later, the number of people on the other side of the wall will outnumber my ability to build a wall. It's just how the system works. So the reason the book is called the Magna Carta was because in the year 1215, specifically in what we know today to be Great Britain, it's not great, it was just Britain. It's a joke. <laughs> but specifically what we know today to be Great Britain, the, the, there was a system of economics that worked a little bit like this. To, to amass wealth, you had to own land. That's why in South Africa we talk about the land debate. In fact, interesting story, until 1886, 81% of global wealth said resident in land as, an, as a store of value. So it's no longer the case, by the way. It's not like 4%. Um, 
And that's a different conversation for a different day, another book. <laughs> what does he find? Well, yeah. So, so, um, so if, to, to store wealth, you owned land. And the people who owned land became known as lords. That's where the House of Lords came from. It was people who were distinguished, who owned land. That's why when you lived on land owned by the Lord, he made you sign an agreement and you called him your land lord. Similar today to renting, for instance. But the problem was around the late 1100s, early 1200s. Uh, the peasants who were living on the land and farming it, a little bit for sustenance, a little bit for trading, had to pay taxes to the lords who paid taxes to the king. The king got kind of greedy and he pushed up the taxes too much. And as a result, the, land, the lords pushed up their taxes. And as a consequence, peasants couldn't afford to pay. So they sparked a revolution. They marched. And they marched to the king's palace. And they forced him to come outside and meet him. And there they forced him to sit down and sign a charter. And in the charter it said, it's fascinating, it actually said, all man is made equal. Um, an idea today that we hold true in, in Roman law was first stipulated in that charter. It said, all man is presumed innocent until proven guilty. It was first said in the charter. But the point about the charter was the peasants took the power from royalty. And the charter was known as is the Latin term Magna Carta, which means the Great Charter, the Magna Carta. So in the book, and the reason it's called the Magna Carta is I'm speaking about a new charter for how we need to think about the world and how it's changing and how that affects how we need to run our businesses and manage ourselves and our people. Awesome. Thanks for that. That was some good history lesson there. But um, the thing that I'm concerned about is that we're going to share too much of the book, but I also think that might be fine. Ah, it's all good. It's, um, the well, it's all sold out, so they have to. <laughs> so we'll, 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 we'll share as much as we can. Because the other idea that you talk about in the book, and you've touched on it, is really about thinking differently. I mean, you spoke about you know, Amazon, 50, uh, 200 billion. So thinking differently and thinking about Alpha X, which is your formula. So, so this has got a new formula for us about how to think about businesses. And he talks about Alpha X in the box. Do you want to share with us your concept of Alpha X and, and, and how that relates to thinking differently? Yeah. So uh, if you work in investments, uh, all of you here, by the way, uh, imagine and have pension funds which are invested in the stock market. No? Okay. Is this is your pension fund? <laughs> so, if, you know, for the average citizen, like the rest of us, you typically have access to a pension fund. And it, what pension funds do is using a structure called the General Partner Limited Partner, GPLP structure, will give money to institutions who will invest the money on your behalf. And really what you're doing when you're putting money in a pension fund is you're trying to protect yourself from the depreciation of currency value, this thing called inflation. So what, what traders do is they take your money and they buy shares in the market. So a good stock will generate, let me, let me, let me go back. So all markets have an average. If there are five players, 2.5 would be the average of the five. If there are two, one and two, 1.5 would be the average of the one and two. So anytime you have a market, there's going to be an average of performance, right? And the average is about the vacillation between the top and the bottom. So follow me on this, because it's actually not that complex. It's pretty cool. So, 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 so. So there's the average. 1.5. Whatever the average is. So there's you and me. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. The, diff the average between me and you would be like um, probably Brad Pitt. 
I'm better looking than Brad. So, the, so he'd be like the average. So anyway, so, so let's just say it's five. Right. So there's the average between the two. Now, now, very good traders are paid on their ability to generate this thing called an alpha. And an alpha, if this is the average, is your deviation above average. In other words, it's how well you perform relative to the average of the market. Okay. This is how we've run businesses for the longest time. So um, if you go and talk to the CEO of Pick and Pay and you ask him, are you doing well? He'll say, sure, I'm generating an alpha of X. Because what he'll say to you is, if my market is growing at X, I'm growing marginally above that. Yeah. There's only one CEO who went below the average. That was Jacob Zuma. He kind of went back. <laughs> By the way, that's not a political statement. It's a statement of fact. I think about politics as a business. And in my view, when you're the president of a political party, you're the CEO of a company. So the, perhaps the one, the, one, the one CEO of a political party who truly understands its potentiality is Julius. Because in less than a decade, he's gone from 0 to 7% of market share with no marketing budget. Just Twitter. It's really radical thinking. So you generate an alpha. Now, now, now. All, all leaders want to generate alpha. If you're an entrepreneur, you want to generate an alpha. The market is performing an average of X, you want to perform at an average of, and what I'm, the point I make in the book is alpha is not enough. It's just not enough. In a country with a 28% unemployment rate, narrow definition, 42% by the broad definition, it's not enough to generate an alpha of X. What we need is not only the alpha, but the difference to close the gap that is very clear for all of us to see when we leave here and you roll up your windows because you might be marked the roll. Okay, so the point I make in the book is that actually far beyond making profit, the purpose of business is to generate a strong socially sustainable system. And the only way we do it is to generate an alpha plus an X. And in the book you talk about I mean I I love the examples that you use in the book. And the first, the first one that comes to mind is the is the Shoprite and the pick and pay example. Yeah, yeah. But that's a beautiful example because they started. I mean, they were they were they were the same yeah. at a stage. Yeah. And then explain to us how how the alpha over X came into play with those two businesses. So, so I gotta tell you, first time that when we did the book, we went through a very specific process of meeting with and interviewing all of the subject matter case studies. And it was important because you, you could review literature, but literature review is only one method of, of research. And I, I wanted the book, at the very least, to be beyond reproach. So even if you could argue, um, if, if, even if you argued my conclusion, I didn't want you to be able to argue the logic. Yeah? So let me show you the process. So, so Pick and Pay and Shopout are interesting in the sense that they are perhaps the most um, clear example of the insanity of business. Um, hmm. if, you're, if you're in business today as I am, you are certifiable. You're crazy. Uh, you're cuckoos. <laughs> and, and the reason that is is because you, you genuinely think you can do better than the next person selling exactly what they sell to the same people in the same market. So there is no part of the market system that, that suggests you're better. What we do, because we're business people and we're smart, we use techniques like branding, marketing, and advertising to convince the consumer that they need our thing better than the rest. But the truth is, whether or not it's a Bugatti or a Beetle, excuse my language, it's a fucking car. It's gonna go from X to Y. It has a utility point to it. Why well, am I gonna pay an exponent of a thousand for the other? It's because people have convinced me that it's different. So 
Pick and Pay and ShopRite are a clear example, because if you think about what they do, they put up a brick building, they put a brand on it, inside they put stuff on shelves, then they have people waiting in, cash, in, in, in a cash register system, and they sell you at a price they tell you is better than the next guy, but a can of baked beans, whether you buy it at Pick and Pay, Woolies or ShopRite, is a can of baked beans, I'm sure you'd agree. So we studied both companies, and over 10 years, the, the difference was just remarkable. I'll give you the numbers. In 03, Pick and Pay was 30 billion. In 2014, 10 financial years later, Pick and Pay was 64 billion. If you assume, which you shouldn't do, but let's talk. Let's assume. If you assume the one-to-one -one relationship between revenue growth and share price growth, what that means is you would have bought a Pick and Pay share for one rand in 2003, it'd be worth 2 rand 20 in 2014. ShopRite went from 29 billion, a billion rand less in 2003, to 108 billion. Last year, ShopRite was 143 billion. These are, these are the numbers. 143 billion, by the way, is 143 is one away from 144. 12 by 12 is 144. So ShopRite makes 12 billion rand a month. There are four weeks in a month, ShopRite makes three billion rand a week. You work five days in a week, ShopRite makes 600 million rand a day. You work eight hours in a day if you work 10 because you were studious, ShopRite makes 60 million rand an hour. If you bend the laws of physics any way you want, you'll find that ShopRite makes a million a minute. But they sell meal meal, baked beans, to Mr. and Mrs. Housewife. So the question I ask in the book is, they sell the same products to the same customers in the same market. What does the one do that the other doesn't? And it's, uh, it's the first chapter, which is the one that speaks about context. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> I, I was waiting for the answer right now. <laughs> you kind of got to buy the book. Yeah, yeah. There's no books to buy. So we'll have to share a bit more than usual. So, I mean, but the one thing that I do like about it, well, there's a few things. But it's, it's really South African context. You know, a lot of the times we go, to, we go to bookstores and it's all the American stuff. It's the American case studies. It's the American this and the American that. And we need more South African stories because this is home to us. And this is real for us. And we've got to learn from these guys. And that's what I really enjoyed about going through, through some of the examples in the book um, and looking at them and seeing, you know, how can we apply them yeah. in South Africa. And hopefully one of your other books will tell us a bit more, one of your other five, about, <laughs> about how, we, how we can do that. But we'll see, if we, if we look at, at that, and, we, and, and I mean, this is a country ripe of entrepreneurs. You talk a lot about entrepreneurship in your book. Uh, you've just spoken about how crazy we have to be to be entrepreneurs. The question is, 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 is how do we apply some of this in our businesses and helping us to think differently to, to apply, because otherwise it's just theory. Yeah. Uh, yeah, great question. So, again, um, I wrote the book the way I like reading. I was quite selfish like that. And I, I am notoriously poor at reading long pieces of literature. I hated the textbooks we got in my MBA. Hated them, because they were all this thick. Absolutely hated the idea that a chapter is 20 pages. Can't you tell it to me in four? And once you get beyond the redundancy and tautology, it actually is just four pages of substance and content. So when we, in the process, when we, when we did the book, we went through a process of distillation. So we went, well, this is, a, this is a body of work. Let's compress it. Okay, this is what's left. Let's compress it further. Let's just get to the point. So let me say what I want to say, not go around about way of doing it. 
So the question you ask is about how do we make practical, right? And the, I said to you, I, I wrote the book how I read. When I read a business book, I'm, I read it because I want to learn and I want to do something different tomorrow than what I did today. I'm really not reading it to put it up on my book of tombstones about all the books I've read. But my team, some of my team is here, they'll tell you, if you come to my office, we've got an entire office just full of books I've read. It's just, I read. But I don't read to say to people I'm reading. I read because I want to learn and I want to get better. So once we kind of did the research, I then said to the team, we've got to develop a code of things that would distill the content of the book. And the code are the five pillars in the book that we speak about. So we speak about the, 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 the result of the great business or the great team or the great organization is the overarching result, but it sits resident on five pillars. And these pillars is what I speak about. So the first pillar, for instance, is context. Um, how would I? So context is a bit like this. Business is, in, is a lot more about why you think you're in it than what you, what you do. But it only takes you, it takes you a long time to get to that. This, Typically, having been an entrepreneur myself and then having worked as a manager and having sat on boards of large businesses, is what we measure is the what. In fact, everything we measure is the what, because you can't measure why. So think about audited financial statements, income statements, think about all the stuff we publish, right? When a CEO calls a quarterly report with analysts to tell them about the performance of the firm, he's telling them what, it's quantum, numbers. We went from X market to that. We sold this number of units. We got this number of market shares. All what? But great businesses exist for why and then what? And Simon Sinek talks a lot about that virtuous circle. So a South African example. Yes. So the guys at ShopRite really get this, right? Because, true story, around 02, the South African government had a problem in that there were parts of the country to which they didn't have a distribution network to distribute income grants. And I suppose owing to perhaps tradition or whatever, the South African government approached um, Pick and Pay and said, can we use your stores to distribute the income grants? And the guys at Pick and Pay said no. And the reason they said no is because they said, we're retailers. What? So Whitey finds out about this. Whitey goes to the government and says, I'll do it. I said, sure. I said, yeah, why not? I asked him why. Whitey says, he says, I'm not in the business of selling mini-meal and baked beans. I'm in the business of bringing dignity to the poor. I do it today by selling mini-meal and baked beans. But guess what? If it means I know that my customers, who are poor people, love entertainment, and the way I can bring it to them is by owning a ticketing business that makes it cheaper for them to buy tickets, I'll buy a computer ticket. And he does. Yeah? So if you think about the whole franchise of all the businesses under the ShopRite banner, everything from uh, even Petco, which is I suppose related as a sister company, it's about bringing dignity to poor people. Remember those results I told you about, those financial results? Yeah. A, a strong part of that performance was because of people that went to ShopRite stores to collect their income grants and then wouldn't leave, they bought groceries. Yeah. And that's why they've done better than, so by the time Pick and Pay caught on, and this is an important lesson by the way to all entrepreneurs and all business people, strategy is a laggard. All strategies are laggard. When you do strategy and you assess what your competitors are doing, I owned a strategy firm for 10 years. I sold it to an American investor group. I'm telling you, I was really good at this. If you do strategy, every piece of information and intel you get is dated and old. Because it's fact. In other words, you go, well, our competitors last year did, yeah, that was last year. 
So what you're going to do is you're going to base your future performance based on your competitor's past performance. You forget that as you're meeting having a strategy conversation, so too are they. So the real conversation shouldn't be, what did they do last year? The real conversation should be, what are they talking about now? And what are they going to do? But that's kind of not how we approach strategy. And that's what the guys at Pick and Pay realized. Because by the time they caught on to what ShopRite had done, it was way too late. The horse had bolted, right? That's a lovely story. I mean, these are the South African stories that we really need to get out so that we can understand you know, what's happening in our own country. Because I think the, the comparison that you made is with the railroad system. You know, railroads were just about moving goods. But you, are you in the business of the railroad or are you in the business of moving goods, you know, getting your wine? And understanding understanding what that is and and, and how that relates. Um, does anybody like a question to ask a question for Vusi at the stage? I'm going to do that intermittently and just going to see if there's there's anybody that's got a burning question, uh, you know, just to get that burn out. Don. So what Dawn is asking is, you know, a, a lot of the, 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 the Alpha X maybe refers to the shop rights and to those big businesses. But what about the, the guy who has a smaller business of, let's say, 20 people? So even for that guy, I think, so the, re the reason it's difficult for small businesses to think about Alpha Plus X is because small businesses are notoriously bad at gathering data. The reason a big business can tell you what Alpha is is because information is readily available. If I'm a listed stock, and I compete with five other listed companies, I can tell you they're performing, they listed. But for all of us running small businesses, it's, it's really between us, our accountants, SARS, and the bank. You know, nobody else knows. Um, you know, I run a venture capital fund, right? So I, I, can, I think I can speak with a little bit of authority about what makes small businesses tick. My view, it's all about iteration. Um, I was gonna make a point about business models. The most fascinating lesson for me, having learned during the book, was actually that all business models die. All of them. Businesses don't have to. The problem with business leaders and business people is we think the business model is the business. And it's not necessarily the case, right? So, I don't know, if, if I owned a, uh, a taxi route, for instance, I might not sell moving passengers. I might not sell to the passengers that they pay to ride in my taxi, but I might sell advertising space in my taxi and let the passengers ride for free. The business model would die, the business would sustain itself. So small businesses get caught in traps of business models that generate cash flow because you have no shareholders funds. You can't go to the market and list and do an IPO and have an endless supply of money to run losses on. So what you do is you, you live month on month, then quarter on quarter, seeking to, to build profits. And anytime something disrupts your business model, you get nervous because that disrupts your cash flows. When in fact, really great business people, we're doing it now with our venture capital fund. I said to the team, I said it this morning, just this morning, I said to them, we have a business model problem. 
So I said to them, we've got 40 clients, we're gonna charge all our clients zero. We're gonna send them zero invoices. They look at me like I'm crazy. I go, well, if we charge them zero, then we'll force ourselves to ask the question, what's the business model? Because charging the client isn't it. And it's just about iteration. And what will happen is on the third, second, the third, or fourth, God, please, no, please just on the second. But on like the second iteration, we'll find the business model that works, and then we'll generate that alpha plus X. So right, you know, we become too comfortable because we're making money in any event. Why do we want to push ourselves to take the take that dangerous leap and, and and try something new? Because I mean, I'm assuming in some of your studies you've actually seen where businesses have grown and and then they backscale completely. Um, and maybe there's a story about that you could share with us. Yeah. In, in fact, better than that, I'll tell you what, what was, for me, the most fascinating thing was how often the best entrepreneurs are disgruntled former employees. They rock. <laughs> they, they're really good. And what they do, it's the most fascinating. So, 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 so. The problem with business is, a big business, is that there's no institutional memory of the early days. That's why people who work in big businesses are such arrogant people. It's like people that work at banks, no offense to any of you that do. People that work at banks are notoriously bad. I'll tell you why. Because when you work at a bank, your home loan is guaranteed to be, to be given. You work at the bank, of course they're gonna grant you the home loan. Of course they're gonna give you the, the, the vehicle asset finance. Of course they're gonna give you a credit card. You work for the bank. So when you go to the bank and you complain that their credit criteria is stringent, the employee doesn't know what you're talking about because he's getting the home loan. Make sense? He's not drinking his own Kool-Aid. He doesn't follow the same process you and I do. A great example of this. So there's this crazy guy. He's an actuary. He's Jewish. It's not his fault. <laughs> he's working for this company called Liberty. And he's coming up, 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 up the ranks. And he recognizes that there's a problem. And the problem, he says, is a business model problem. So he goes to his boss, Nafaganafeta. He tells the story. He says to the guy, you know, if we, if we thought about our product this way and we did these things, this is what would happen. And they kind of go, ah, no, that won't work. He goes above the boss's, the boss's head to the boss's boss, and the boss's boss also says no. So he leaves. And the lesson there for us is the reason both those bosses said no is because none of them were there when that business was started. So they have no idea what intuition and entrepreneurship and instinct is like. They're managers. When they came in, it had a big, big building with 11 floors in it and departments and compartments and HR, right? When you, when you start from, if I promise you, if you pitched it to the founder, the founder would have got it because his entrepreneurial instinct would have kicked in. So those guys didn't get it. So he leaves. As luck would have it, he's got, he tells a story, a single Excel spreadsheet. Somebody says to him, you should go see these guys at RMIH, Grand Merchant Investment Holdings. Walks in, single Excel spreadsheet, he puts the Excel spreadsheet up, walks out of the meeting with 100 million rand in funding. The business he left, the guy's name is Adrian. The business he left was Liberty. The business he started was Discovery. Now the reason that's funny, listen to this, true story. Just last year, just last year, Liberty got rid of their CEO, Tabo. Because in three years, he went from 68 to 61 billion. He lost 7 billion rand in top line. At the same time, Discovery gained seven billion rand in top line. I'm not saying it's a coincidence, but I think it's a coincidence. Right? So, so, and, and again, I think the, the point there is about, it's the business model that does. And oh, so Nike, everybody's now doing this idea that you can 
co-create the product, that I can buy an insurance product and rather than just pay, if I behave well and I'm a good risk, it pays me back. Now they're doing it with investment products, they're doing it with home insurance, with car insurance. But it all started because there was an actuary sitting in a department in a large company, went and pitched and there was no instinct for the, for the flare, and he left. Yeah. I, w I wonder how many of those ideas that there are out there just, yeah. just go to waste, you know? We actually need like a little funnel where we can find all these ideas and put them through and, and help grow this country because what we need is that exponential growth, that alpha X, yeah. to, to, get our, to get our jobs right. Yeah. Um, right, another question. Anybody else get another question? Colin, yes. Okay, let me let me stand here and ask a question. We uh, well, congratulations, man. Uh, this is a great book. I managed to read it, and uh, without stealing your thunder and revealing all the details in the book, we have to save some of the questions for your TV interview. <laughs> let, me, let, let me move away from the big corporate sector yeah. and bring it to the level of small business. Yeah. The South African environment has been deemed to be enabling for a young entrepreneur. And for me, the problem has been that there are barriers to market entry. A, a business like so where to go is not able to enter the beer market in South Africa nationally yes. because of what Inbev does. Yes. A young person who wants to start a bakery in a township, yes. he wants to perform like what your book would inspire him to do. Because yes. your book is phenomenal. Right? I mean, it's applicable in, both, in, in all the sectors. Now, for a person who has been inspired like that and wants to increase the resources they put into the business in order to maximize the profits, and to inspire the employees and to have a buy-in from the clientele because there's competition yes, there. Yes. How is it going to be absolutely applicable and succeed because of the, the barriers that are there? And also, you know, with reference to the corruption, the colluding, irregular accounting uh, incidents and so forth. So I don't want to ask you a loaded question, but I'm just saying, for a person who's frustrated <laughs> putting in business, there, yeah, for a person who's frustrated in business and saying, this book speaks to my business idea, yeah. and I want to make it like the way Voss puts it, how do I do it practically? Yeah. So, so that is a loaded question, but it's a great question. <laughs> wow, there's, so there's like four different questions there. Let's see how we go at this. So, 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 where do we start? So, the problem, ah, right. So the, the problem with the South African economy is that it's oligopolistic by its nature. And in fact, no, it's oligopolistic by design. Um, 55 million citizens in South Africa, 84% of them black African. Five major banks, how many black African are? Six car, large clothing retailers, how many black African are? Four large pharmaceutical companies, how many black African are? I'm gonna make a statement which is controversial, but it's true. Competition is bullshit. No one wants to compete. We do it because we have to. But nobody wakes up going, I really wish there were more of us doing this. Okay. When you study economics, this is Economics 101, they teach you about uh, monopoly and perfect competition. 
And the idea is that the farther you move from a monopoly to monopolistic, then oligopoly, yada, yada, when you get to perfect competition, how do you know you're in perfect competition when there's zero profits? Okay? So, if you're an entrepreneur, the last thing you want to do is compete. Because there's no profits. Your question about the, 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 the bakery. So I want to start a bakery. But I can't out-bake the Sasko Sam. I'll tell you why. They've got a balance sheet with maybe four, five hundred million rand worth of assets that they've written down to zero, which means their marginal cost on the unit of bread that those assets produce is zero. I've first got to raise the money and I'm going to be able to pay back the money, which means there is a cost not only to the capital, but the cost of the application of that capital, and I've got to price it into the product, and I hope to compete to them in the market. It's just not going to happen. So I say this to every single entrepreneur. Don't compete. Create a corner where you don't have to. The thing is, most people are too lazy to find the corner where you don't have to compete. And I know it sounds really complex, but... If I were to start a bakery, think of a bakery, I probably wouldn't bake bread. I might bake amapuina and distribute them nationally. Why? Because, well, no one's doing it. Right? Where do people buy amapuina? It's at the taxi rank. Okay, so I'll start a amapuina bakery company and I'll just do that. And I'll sell it cheaply enough and get the distribution right. As long as I get the distribution right, I can do it. So the, the issue with the South African economy is that it's oligopolistic. You made the, the statement, you said, South African environment is right for entrepreneurs. It's not. I've lived, in, I've lived in many countries. This is by far the hardest to be a small business. By far. And I love my country, but this is true. The tax system works against you. The banking system works against you. The credit system works against you. The, I mean, it, it's a joke. Right. So there's what we say we want to do with creating entrepreneurship, and then there's actually what we do. And those two things are worlds apart. So then my last comment. Remember my thing, perfect competition, monopoly? I laugh every single time when I hear the competition commission uh, find people. Because for me, it's funny that you find people for doing what is natural, which is collaborating. If there are two of us in a market and we control 100% of it, and we work out that if we, you and I, collaborated, would increase our profits by 20%, is it not logical that we would do it? Of course it is. We're in the business of maximizing shareholder value. Right? So every single time, in, in, you'll, this, you'll notice this will happen. In a production system, something upline wants to go downline and buy. The competition commission will go, no, you're not allowed to do it because it's market sensitive, or you're gonna control the market. It's natural. Natural business is monopolistic. I'm not in business to have a thousand competitors. I buy them if I can. I'll malign them, I'll get them out of market, I'll speak ill about them, I'll, I'll brand them, I'll do whatever it takes to get them out of the market. So this idea that there must be perfect competition to foster entrepreneurship is rubbish. I say to every single entrepreneur I meet, if you can find a monopoly, get it. If you can't, make it but go and create a little corner for yourself. And then what will happen, as was the case with the guys at Soar to Gold, is often when you create those monopolies, the guys in marketing call them a niche, the big players are forced to buy you. Because you, you've got the niche now. You've got the first mover advantage. You know, you're Carl Vestwick, who started retail capital and then Foshini bought it, right? He figured out a way to on-lend to consumers to buy clothing based on cash flows, not on assets. And he was really good at it. It was just a small credit modeling business. 
and Fashini bought it for a couple of billion. It's really, really smart. So my view, but and I know it's controversial, but entrepreneurs don't compete. Stay away from them. Great. And you are going to ask the question. <laughs> with Elon Musk and um, all the driverless trucks and yeah. all the technology happening, in South Africa we've got this big unemployed yeah. mass. How in the hell do we take all of the stuff that's yeah. happening around us and, and, and work in South Africa? Yeah. Can you give us some idea of how we're going to do it? Okay, so Greg is asking about you know, Elon Musk and all the technology and the stuff happening. And in South Africa we've got all this... Um, that's unemployment. How do we, I mean, how do we put that into context? Or into leadership, one of your other pillars? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so I, I love the study of history. I'll tell you why. My view is that nothing is new. Everything is repeated. Everything. <laughs> so if you, if you go far back enough in history, you'll typically find that what's happening has happened before. There's an interesting professor, a fellow called Niall Ferguson. He's a Cambridge professor. But he speaks about the theory of 278. He says, history repeats itself every 278 years. The problem is as human beings, we don't live that long. So for us, when it happens, it feels new. But it's like if you study time, it's actually happened before. So now to your question. The, the, the world was designed in an industrial complex of the three production factors land, labor, and capital. The idea was, if you had land and you applied labor and capital, you'd generate more capital. That's how we built nations, that's how we built economies. So why do people go looking for employment? Because employment is my putting in effort, and for an effort, I get capital back. So when I look at what's happening with the resurgence of both the third and fourth industrial revolution, both Professor Jeremy Rifkin's work and I've had the privilege of working with him, who coined the term the Third Industrial Revolution, and Professor Schwab, who is of the World Economic Forum, and speaks about the Fourth Revolution. The thing about both of those revolutions, which are happening at the same time, is they're forcing us to ask ourselves the question, should we be thinking about these things in the first place? Should man labor? Should man work? Man doesn't have to pay. If man doesn't have to drive the car, he doesn't have to fly the airplane. He doesn't have to operate the cashier till. Should he be working at all? Then maybe what should happen is, machines should be doing it, and corporates that are benefiting from machines should be doing it, should be paying taxes to governments, and governments should be paying endowments to citizens who don't have to work, they're just earning their government, being a citizen. Maybe that's the new model of economics in the future. But I think the reason everybody's locked in, oh my God, that these are the things that are gonna take our jobs, is because we still think you have to apply labor, and for the application of labor, gain economic reward. So rather than be skeptical, I'm actually very excited about what it means for the world. Look at what's just happened in Switzerland now. I don't know if you guys have seen, but Switzerland has passed a base, um, base salary for all citizens. So even if you're not employed in Switzerland, you're guaranteed a salary. Liechtenstein did it about uh, 15 years ago. So they've been doing it for 15 years already. But Liechtenstein's not really a country. It's about 30,000 people. Um, so Switzerland has now done it, and the, way, the reason Switzerland can do it is because it's got a strong enough capital market system that the rate of economic growth is not correlated with the rate of employment growth. Whereas here, we still go, that's why you hear, you know, the president goes, how do we get more people employed? Grow the economy. Yeah, that's 1982 thinking. The question should be, should we be getting people employed? Maybe not. Yeah, can I just add one more thing? Yeah, please do. 
Here's another way to think about that. So, Sadka's biggest problem today without question, education. Just think about it. We had fees must fall with young learners going and marching on the street saying, higher education is too expensive. They said, drop the fees. And I said, they're thinking, why drop the fees? Why fees at all? Should be zero. And it is zero, because the marginal cost to teach a student is zero. I'll tell you why the cost is zero. Because who pays for the building? The government. Who pays for the residences? The government. And when these young people gain employment, to whom do they pay taxes? The government. So why is the government investing capital in a system that seeks to exploit the very people who are going to participate in the mainstream economy? This system is broken. There's a problem here. But the system, the problem is, the, the thinking is linear. So the young people go, we need more, more schools. We need more universities. The Department of, Edu of Education goes, let's build universities. They can't build a university. You've got to plan it for 15 years, another five years to build it. And in the process, you've got to train more lecturers because you actually have to have the lecture in front of the children. And then you've got to buy more textbooks. Why don't we just distribute, here's a wild idea, why don't we just get iPads in front of every single child everywhere in the country and on that iPad load a really phenomenal Wi-Fi system, all the textbooks they need for their first year, and have all the content of what the lecturer would, would teach streamed and they can all attend. That's how I did my MBA. Half me and me, I do without going to class. I was studying in London, and I was, I was in London, then here, and London, and here, and I still got a distinction for my MBA. So the problem, the thinking is linear. That's why we're locked in this, what does the future look like? The future is really, really exciting. We just have to see the future for what it is, not for what the past was. Amen to that. Good thinking there. Professor, I want to take you back to, to South Africa. And there's an example that comes to mind when we talk about a company that started in an industry that was already saturated and made money, well, being successful, and that is our insurance. Yeah. But that goes against the bit what you said, no, no, about you know not going into competition because you do get companies that go into competition and they make it. No, it's like it's, a, it's exactly on the brain. So I know I know William Bruce who started our insurance very well, and and remember their value proposition was out insurance, not insurance. So he carved a niche. And as a result, he forced his competitors to come back and go, actually, we, we, should, we should really think about doing this too. He's not alone, by the way. If you look at the team that built Capitech, they also went into a saturated market. I mean, Capitech is in a very tight spot. Right? That's a, you're lending to people who are just on the margins of affordability. You've got to get your credit scoring just right, and your distribution just right, and your pricing just right. So I'm, I'm fascinated at a meta uh, operational level. How many clients does Capitec have to service per center to cover the cost of a square meter, including the cost of HR, cost of labor? For me, that's a fascinating question. I'd love to sit with them and go through their numbers and get to the nuts and bolts of it. So how much interest charge do you have to make at what default rate to pay for the square meter for every single shop that you've got, right? Mm. But how does Capitec go into a market where there are four large banks with one product. Like you think about a bank, what do they do? They just create products all the time. There's personal, personal banking, business banking, and in the personal banking, there's the card you don't want to have, and then there's the silver one, then there's the gold, then there's the black one, which now isn't black, it's just the color, and then there's the really, really black one. You know what I'm saying? It's like a, there's like a, even on credit cards, there's like a whole scoring system, there's platinum, and 
my, and each of these are like product houses and they've got a head of the product house and the head of an IT department and they've got their own floor and they're like, geez, they're going conferences. It's fucking amazing. <laughs> Capitech goes, no, just one product. That's all we're gonna do, one. But what we're gonna do is we're gonna do it so well, we're gonna hone ourselves a tiny little niche and we're gonna, so, the, so they're a monopoly. You try and start a Capitech competitor, you can't. They have completely monopolized that part of the market. And here's how you know somebody's a monopoly is when they pull competition. So monopolies have a center of gravity. When you're, when, when you're a monopoly, you pull people towards your behavior. You watch, they'll start doing what you do. And what happened? All the banks started going, yeah, we, we probably should be doing this too. You know, this is, this is something we should be doing. Right, but, but you're touching on the thing that we're very passionate about, and that's really, I mean, we've got to think differently about businesses. The yeah. old way of thinking is just, you know, you've got to ask yourself, but, okay, so now you're saying to me, you will say, I need to think differently. How do I think differently? Well, you come to the business book club, first of all, <laughs> uh, because this is where you'll get these new and great ideas. Second of all, you support Scoops, you buy some of their books, and you read the freaking stuff, because that's where you start to learn differently, because this man is really talking about doing stuff differently, but that doesn't fall out of the air. Um, we've got to stop being ignorant about knowledge and that we have the opportunity to do stuff differently. There is a major opportunity, but it's upon each of us to take that responsibility. And I want to, I want to talk about one of your, your other pillars, uh, which I think is extremely important, and it's leadership. Yeah. Because leadership is big in the sense, because we always externalize leadership. You know, when we look at a country like South Africa and we look at Jacob Zuma and all the stuff that went through, we externalize the leadership because it's not me, it's everybody else. But what about self-leadership? And how does that relate to the entrepreneur? And how does he make sure that he understands or she understands what does leadership mean to be able to take a product and to lead a business? Because, you know, I think that's one of the things that we sometimes battle with is to understand my responsibility towards leadership to be able to grow the business that all stakeholders can share in it in an equitable and profitable way. Yeah, yeah that's a really good question. Uh, let, me, let me just confess to you, in the, in the process of the book, I was really worried about writing on leadership. And the reason is because as a subject matter, it's just so vast. And there's so much literature on it. And I, I wondered, what could I contribute that hadn't already been said. Like, what, what, what would I say that was new, that was a different perspective? Um, so, in, in, in the process of our research, we, we found actually that leadership just comes down to three things. It's about pace, tone, and language. That's typically what leadership is about. So what leaders do is they set the pace, they set a specific tone, and there is a very clear, consistent language. In a, an environment that's well-led, you'll pick up those three things. Here's the thing, even in an environment that's poorly led, those three things are there. So you'll, you'll, you'll and when I talk about tone, so you use uh, a former president, allow me some, some latitude. So the tone he set was a very specific tone, which we're not still battling with, which was that doing things in a manner that is other than moral is acceptable. And that message became pervasive. And the thing about leaders is they don't have to say it. Yeah. But they set the tone, right? So it's just about what tone are you setting for your team? For entrepreneurs, it's about, when you think about tone, it's what time do you rock up at work? What time do you leave? My team will tell you, they get WhatsApps from me at two o'clock in the morning. 
True story. Why? Because I'm telling them, I'm awake at 2 o'clock in the morning obsessing over what we're doing. You better be at work at 8 o'clock. At the very least, yeah? Uh, we just had to go through a recapitalization exercise. I'm very transparent with my team, so I told them. I said, this is where we are, this is how much money is needed, this is how much money I'm putting in. My own personal money. I can take it and invest it for my kids, but I'm going to put it in so I can pay your salaries. Because I believe in what we're doing. But that's the tone. That's the, that's the, that's the, yeah, that's just the tone. The pace is also very important because if you're a leader and you move slower than or faster than your people, then you're just not leading. You're, you know, you're, you're kind of um, like Jose Mourinho. You're just off on your own somewhere and you're hoping people are going to catch up, you know, through some process of osmosis. Um, and it's like the fellow that ran the IFP. People are just like, what's he doing? So, so there's a, so there's a, so that when, when you're a leader, you have to pick up the pace. As an entrepreneur, let me tell you, I get frustrated with That's South Africans and how slow they are. Yeah. Just like, move! Yes, yes. It's like, do you know what I mean? It's like, a, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is, but it's, I've, I've lived enough in other parts of the world to know you give an instruction at 8, 8.30, it's done. Jeez, in this place, you gotta wait for next week. Uh -huh. and, then, and, there's a, and, there's a, and people forget, you know, people say time is money. No, money is time. Right? When I have money, I have time. When I don't have money, I don't have time. So if I give an instruction, it's about, and I'm finding when I'm leading people that I'm often having to pull along the pace. It's guys, let's speed up a bit. Well, let's move quicker. You know, they, I, I often say to my team that being thorough and being fast are not mutually exclusive. It doesn't follow that because you're really thorough, you have to slow things down. We can do both. Um, you just got to figure out a way to be more efficient. Yeah. I love, I love, I love your, I love your tone. <laughs> Any other questions, guys? Yes. Ah, Ronald, yes. Jesus, this is a long question, now I have to remember. Uh, okay. So, clearly you think differently. And clearly you think differently, I think. And that's what is needed by more, let's call them leaders, uh, poor people who want to be leaders in, in the country. At what stage in your life did you realize that it was okay to think differently? Because often we find ourselves in a position where we're telling people these exciting things. Put down until we're fortunate to meet a mentor that actually helps us and say it's not wrong. So when did, oh. you, when did you realize? Thanks, thanks, Ron. Great question. So what Ronald is asking is, you know, he's making the comment that obviously uh, Wussy thinks differently, and I think we can all nod our heads on that one. But, but, but at what stage in your life do you sort of come and realize that, hey, I, it, it's actually okay to do things a bit differently? Because I think that's sometimes the challenge of the entrepreneur is, you know, if I'm going to do stuff different than my business, uh, what am I giving up? You know, what's the risk I'm running? Um, <laughs> it took a while. I had to. I, I personally had to go through a process of maturity. But here's what I've come to learn: society is an illusion. There's no such thing as society. Society is nothing more than a commonly held set of values, beliefs, and norms. But because they're commonly held, means that they are common, ergo average. Therefore, if you don't want to be, you shouldn't be living according to them. Now, the problem with society is there is a double-edged sword. So what society does is it says, be yourself. Just don't be yourself. Because if you do, like a nail that, pop, that pops up, society will hammer you back in. And that's, society's really great at that. That's why 
every single person who's idolized was hated. Even Nelson Mandela. Most people who love him never voted for him. Right? So when you are an iconoclast and you are different, you must expect and accept that you are not going to be accepted by society because you're not in the norm. It's just how it works. You're not in the average. You're not in the... So remember to what society does. Society creates this set of norms to protect itself. Yeah? Uh, so society says, it's really not cool for human beings to kill each other. So if you do, we're going to send you to jail. And it builds institutions like courts, and it gives you the police, and if you kill me, you will go to jail. You might not. You get the point. <laughs> but the point is, if you, if, you, if you take someone's life, there's going to be punitive action, right? That's the, that's the balanced side of it. The imbalanced side of it is when society robs you of your individuality. So often the question I get asked by people is, so how do I make sure society doesn't do it for me? You can't, but what you can hope to do is do for, for your children what my parents did for me. So when I was a little boy, my parents always told me that I was different, that I was never average. So I never grew up expecting to be accepted. So today I get teased about a thousand things. So he speaks funny. Okay, well, whatever. I'm rich, you're not. <laughs> not true, but you get the point. Um, so it's, uh, it's like, I'll give you a good, a good way to think about this. So the other day, uh, just now over Easter, it was raining. And uh, I'm sitting watching the TV and my son runs downstairs. And he's got a towel and he's glistening with Vaseline. But like shining. Right? And I'm watching him run down the stairs, all eager, and he's got this towel. So I know exactly where he's going. He wants to swim. But it's cold and it's just, it's still drizzling. So my parent brain goes, tell him, you can't swim. And then I realize, if he goes outside, he's going to work it out anyway. He's going to work out it's cold. And true story, he comes past me, he says he wants to swim. His mother goes, no, you can't. I said to her, just leave. I said, go swim, my boy. Five minutes later, he was back in. Right? And, that's, and that's, that's a part of how we teach our kids to be individuals. And if you want to go swim in the rain, go. But you work out for yourself that it's not a good idea to swim in the rain. I don't have to worry about it. His mom said, what happens if he gets the flu? It's Tuesday, no flu. Yeah, it's, um, that's society's an illusion. We're probably uh, time for two more questions and then we'll have to wrap it up. Yes? Okay. On the leadership. On the leadership. the quintessence of all management study is what do you do with the people who just well so let me tell you what I've my philosophy is all leaders choose their followers all leaders choose their followers even if you adopt a team six months in you've chosen that team because you've had enough time to make changes to move people to shift stuff to set a tone of accountability and a tone of what is acceptable and what is not 
I have a friend of mine who runs an investment bank. He has a he has a technique called lynching. Now I don't recommend it, but it's really smart and it works. So he lynches people. So what he'll do is he'll find somebody who is a notorious offender of a principle of leadership that he doesn't like or a culture that he so 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 he's a be at work at a certain time kind of guy. He'll find somebody that's one minute late, two three days in a row, and he'll fire them on the spot. Lynching. To send the message to everybody, don't do this. Yeah? But my view is when you lead, there is a point at which you've chosen your followers. First they choose you. They go, I want to come and work here. But then in time you choose them. You're the one that, that is that is that is resigned to that work relationship with them. Even in large complex businesses where there are HR processes and stuff to follow to shift people around. Sooner or later, you've chosen the team that you need. Yeah, there will be a team that, that resonates with you and your value system and your tone. Because yeah. uh, that's what it's about. All right, we've got another question right at the back there. So the question is, is how to, how to start a business and how do government help those businesses um, or support them and they start in the field of? Pharmaceuticals. Pharmaceuticals. Okay. All right, go Questions. 
That's a loaded question. Cool. Thank you. So, so the so so the second one was about what do entrepreneurs do, or what do you do as an entrepreneur to to over overbridge some of that that learning for your for your children and the education gap, especially when it comes to technology. And then, and then, what is your your personal view on that? Um, yeah. So, where to start? Perhaps at the, at the top. I I I I want to say that um, I think we misunderstand the role of the state particularly when it comes to the entrepreneurship conversation. So the conversation we've had with entrepreneurs is that the state must create for you an environment that is enabling for the entrepreneur to thrive. Uh, that's the commonly held belief in the world. My view is that that's not the case. Not at all the case. The, the role of the state actually is to be the entrepreneur of default. <laughs> the best states in the world are entrepreneurs. The best technologies in the world are invented by states. The internet, as we have it today, was invented by the American government. The typewriter was invented by the Swiss government. Yeah? So if you study most technologies that have shifted the world, those technologies were first invested into and invented by government organisms. And the reason that's the case is actually very simple, and I'm going along about way, because what you've asked about specifically pharmaceuticals need this. The reason that is the case is because for technologies that shift space, you need long, deep money. And the only person that has long, deep pockets with a zero cost of capital is the state. The only person, okay? The reason why we're not creating entrepreneurs in this country is because our state never got the memo. They didn't get this email. So when entrepreneurs go and ask for money, the state wants to treat the entrepreneur like it's a commercial arrangement. They go, well, give me the money on these terms. No, it should be on no terms. It should be, we give you the money. Go. It's the worst that can happen. You take the money and you fail. Great. You figured out a way it doesn't work. Right? So that, so that, so that, and this is true too for, you asked the question about, uh, and I said that the economy is oligopolistic. You know what nobody tells you? Is that almost every single part of the South African economy was designed to be that way. And every single part of it was designed to have very few players in it. Here's a great example for you. If you want to start an insurance company today in South Africa, the law says, before you get an application form from the Insurance Institute, you must provide 10 million rand in liquid guarantee. Before you get the application form, once you've got the application form and you've completed it, one of the criteria is you've got to send your premiums, or what you believe is, is going to be your collectible premiums for the first 36 months, three years. You've then got to provide 10% in capital adequacy of the premiums you think you're going to collect. So if you think you're going to collect a billion rand, you've got to provide 100 million. So I just want to make the point. You don't have a website, you've not emailed anyone, you've not taken a rental arrangement, you've not hired anyone, you're going to need 110 million rand to start this business. Now, I can promise you today, as sure as I am six foot two and good looking, I can promise you that almost all of the insurance players that enjoy the protection of those rules were not started under the construct of those rules. 
When they were started, those were not the rules. That's why I said, entrepreneurs don't compete. Why would I want to get into a market with a fixed set of rules that protect the big players? I'm guaranteed to lose. This is not, this is not clever strategy. So you asked the question about pharmaceuticals. I'm going to make another thing a point to you that I say to entrepreneurs who come and see you all the time. Just because you're passionate about something doesn't mean you need to start a business about doing it. I'm passionate about singing. I love singing. <laughs> but I'm not releasing an album. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because there's a there is a, there is a disconnect. There is a distance between the things I am passionate about and what makes solid, sound commercial enterprise. The problem is in in literature. We've told entrepreneurs, start businesses on things you're passionate about. So people think I must be, if it's passion, if I'm passionate about it, I must start a business. It's not necessarily the case. Some things are just really suited to being in formal employment. You know, if you're really passionate about credit scoring, I really can't see how you're gonna create a scalable business doing credit scores. Not unless you make left chip and you create a firm or something. I really don't see it. You know, if you're really, really, um, I don't know, passionate about fixing soles of shoes. I can't see how you're gonna create a scalable business that's gonna employ tens of thousands of people fixing soles on shoes. I just I just don't see it. So so, so that's what I would say. And then, and then on your third question around what am I doing, I'm gonna make one final comment. You won't like it, but it's true. The worst thing to give people who don't have anything is charity. There's no dignity in charity. None. And I don't know who sent that message to who, I know we sent it because we were trying to guilt people into giving us stuff. No one, it's in the Bible, no one who stands there begging has a dignity, nobody. There's no dignity in charity, right? So I, I do not give charity because there's no dignity in it. Why am I trying to rob somebody of their dignity? I'll give opportunity, I'll give access, I'll give network, but I don't give charity. It's just not in my nature. And for me, what giving opportunity is, is a scholarship fund to take kids to school. That I'll do. But I won't donate stuff to make me feel good and then put it online somewhere for people because that's that just robs that person of their pride and their dignity. It's wrong. Thank you very much for that for that one. And thank you very much for answering our questions. I unfortunately can't take any more questions. We're we're running a bit short of time, but We'll see you're staying afterwards, we can we can we can network and we can ask you a few questions or are you running home to that? It's my it's my daughter's sixth birthday. Oh my goodness. So okay, so I we're, can I'm gonna run. Okay, but um, watch your emails, there's definitely gonna be stuff about your, your emails and uh, I think you and I are gonna be in the same same seat sometime very soon in the near future. Um, then I ladies and gentlemen, please bear with me. I need to introduce you to another special individual. And his name is Musa. Musa, please come come forward because he is the guy behind the signature library. He's the guy why we donate the books. He's the guy why we come here because our books goes to the signature library. And we've asked Musa tonight just to just to give us a, a little bit of a heads up. Uh, we're not going to take a lot of your time, but we, we we'd like to know what's going on at the signature library, and he's going to share with us um, the progress that has been made. I've been to the opening of the of the of the library with Minister uh, Kigaba and Musa. Welcome to tonight's business book club. Yeah! Uh, evening, ladies and gentlemen. 
today uh, I came with my team actually, group of young people who went together. Uh, it's a new dawn in South Africa, so I've already presented so much here. So I'm going to hand it over to Theo. We work very well together. Theo is a young artist from Soweto also. So we are connected um, libraries and art because through reading, you create images and so many things that happen in the mindset. So Theo is assisting our youngsters with that. So we will take over to your presentation. and an artist by profession. Um, as Musa just stated, um, I met Musa in Soweto. He came to me and asked me, um, can you please paint beans for me? So um, I was supposed to just paint the beans for him. And then what happened, we started like um, collaborating. Uh, my company is called Oye oh yeah Arts, and he has a foundation called Sandy Subuntu Foundation. And that uh, foundation uh, created and built a library, so we had to call it a lecture library. Um, so um, the signature library vision is encouraging communities to inspire success with their signatures. Uh, and the mission is to develop programs that promote positive learning, environment, and social upliftment initiatives. Um, so we started like painting beans uh, with a group of people. Um, just to make um, just a nice alleyway for um, to get like through the library. So what happened when we were painting the beans, we started coming up with the concepts like it derived from what we were doing there. So we started painting the beans and we saw that there is a lot coming out from the beans. Like a, a bean is something that you look down to. It's something that you draw attention to. So we just changed the beans, we painted them and they became beautiful. So we saw that, oh, this is something. And as a bean, universally, a bean is an object that is used for trash, throwing something into. So we thought, like, how about we come up with a campaign called Paint a Bean, which is a pledge in changing attitude. So because, like, for me, what I've noticed is that um, as human beings, the most um, basic thing that we need to change in order to achieve anything that we want is to change our attitudes. And if you as an individual change your attitude, no one can tell you to change it. They can try to persuade you to change whatever you want, but if you want to change, it's up to you. So by painting bean, it's a declaration. It's like you're sitting with the bean for an hour, you're painting it, it's like having a therapy with the bean. So it's like you're throwing your trash into and saying I'm becoming something beautiful after. So that's our campaign. So signature bean uh, campaign is aiming to develop skills and talents in any dream that an individual has. The concept of painting a bean is about one pledging in change of attitude, thinking positive in terms of making their dreams a reality. The campaign is about painting beans. Paint a bean is a universal object used to throw trash into, and it is something we look down on, but it does amazing job for our humanity and environment. Um, whatever is thrown to the bean 
in the long run, the garbage turned into compost and bare fruitful food for us. By painting a bean, an individual is pledging on a personal level for him or her to live a positive lifestyle and to be a person he or he wants to, to be or meant to be. The process of painting a bean goes along with our art therapy. Uh, while one is painting a bean, he or she is taken to a session of searching her inner self and what the person wants in his or her life. As the individual paints a bean, her signature on the art piece declares that her life has changed and the individual will start living a positive lifestyle and also in process of making her, her or his life um, great. Um, signature bean was developed of a concept of signature library. Oye Arts is in partnership with Signature Library in aiming to reach the, the minds of young and old South Africans by creating awareness of giving meaning to meaningless objects, uh, but, but specifically beans. This campaign is about pledging on one's dream which might seem meaningless to others. The idea is to influence change in attitude on how we used to see our dreams and the community around us. The concept of painting beans is also about changing someone's perspective on how they see themselves and giving them a positive attitude about how they look or feel about themselves. The concept hopes to unleash the best in us. Hate, it is said, just when a caterpillar thought the world was over, it became a butterfly. So, in this term, we're not specifically looking at people, um, people's progress. We're also looking at people who are who are disadvantaged, uh, people who are into drugs, uh, people who want to change their lives. And um, in terms of um, the drug abuse that we have in our society now, um, we're trying to reach all the rehab centers to have um, the Painted Bean campaign as part of their um, activity that they do with people who are coming to to rehab centers, so they before they start to to go through the process of rehab rehab centers and stuff, they have to pledge with painting a bin. So that's what we aiming to do. Okay, this is where the campaign started. This is us painting the bins at the school, um, Kolani Primary School. It was twenty three. Um, Metal pins. I hope everyone sees the images. Also, the community does come to paint pins with us. Um, we had um, the community and children from Happy Duty, an organization just next to us. So they painted pins pink. Um, they were doing a walk for cancer. So anyone who is helping other people, anyone who wants to change, or anyone who's influential, they can come to us, and they, they do come to us and paint beans, and put their signatures and codes on their beans. Uh, this one was um, Mr. Kikaba. Last year he came also and he painted the bean. He didn't paint, but he wrote a code on a bean. Um, this is us doing um, community projects, reaching out. Um, to, uh, we're at HPD. We are trying to change the environment of the children there because they are working with children with HIV and orphans. 
So the space was dull, you couldn't say that it's for kids and stuff. So we tried to make it more lively and we played with color. Um, through Signature Library, um, we created a platform for individuals and the youth in our community to, to a platform for them to come develop themselves and come up with new ideas, innovative ideas. So what happened, um, we sat as a group of kids there, we were five, and then it happened that we came up with an idea of opening a printing company, um, a printing company. So we started um, a company called Sibase at the premises of Signature Library because it's open for the community. Um, and we also help people to, to get information, to reach out to them that this is the information that you, can, that you can use to start your own business and stuff like that. So what we have here, we started doing a printing company called Sibase. And the way it works, it also, it's a small, small company, but it's also reaching small companies. Because what we do, we don't, we don't go for, to sub, we don't go um, get supplies from big companies like Wizard and uh, Abilanang and all these big corporates uh, for supplying. What we do, we go to our local mothers, maybe we need um, cushions. So we go to them, they, they sell us cushions, maybe they sell one cushion for 20 rand. So we stock from them and some are uh, sewing t-shirts for us and stuff like that. So we also developing them in terms of developing ourselves also. So the company has two years and it's growing very well. We doing branding, everything. We don't have machines yet, but we got lucky. Um, we partnered with a big printing company, so we a third party to them. So what they provide us, they provide the machines, we look for customers and then we print with them. Okay, this is our library, signature library inside. The pictures are not that well. In the library, we have a gallery inside the library. So the gallery, the gallery inside the library is there to sustain the library in terms of every sale that is being, is being sold, and every piece that is being sold in the library, 35% um, goes to the library just to sustain it. So we call on um, different artists to come there and also present their artworks and stuff like that. Then we take 30% of their um, um, money. Yes. Um, yeah, this is the space. It's a lovely space. Just that thing which is not showing very well. Um, here, it's um, Skylab Technologies. This is the company that we're working with, which is, um, it's, it deals with printing, a lot of things, construction and stuff like that. So they are sponsoring us in terms of um, sustaining the library also. Uh, we built that house. So we were having um, a challenge at the school because uh, we had um, security guards. When it, it was raining and stuff like that, they had to be under umbrellas and stuff. They were, there was no shelter for them. So we made a guard house for them through the help of the community. So we made um, people from the community to donate cement and bricks for us. So it was, it was a collective uh, work for us to build this uh, lovely 
uh, guard house, it has a solar panel, everything. It's fantastic. So everyone contributed. Some came with windows, butler doors, some came with doors, some donated paint. So we normally don't need money from people, but we need just help and time, their time to be there with us. Um, so here, um, we have classes. So we have a program where people, um, they adopted us. Most big corporates adopted us. If you adopted us, um, you bring 50,000, then you adopted us, then the class will be named after that company or that individual. So here it's where we are branding the company. The first one, it was, it is, um, it's a company by Randaval. He deals with lighting. So the class will be all about him and the name of the class will be called Mr. Randaval. And the other one is for Soweto Gospel Choir. And um, for our, our patrons, people come to us and donate um, and help, people are helping us with everything and believing in our dreams and stuff like that. We also give them um, something to show them that we appreciate them. So we made these artworks for them. So here we are submitting these artworks to them. And this uh, is Mr. Randava. This is the other artwork. And this year, there were awards at the um, Houghton Department of Education. With our project, we won first place. Yes, uh, it was amazing. And through the help of the community and everyone, it was a success. And um, to this Book Club, your role is important to us all. And the books that were donated continue to shape the minds of those around us. Without this friendship, we are not going to be able to achieve aim and creating platform of intellectual thinking for our brothers and sisters. We still need more of your signatures to help create trademarks within our communities. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Thea. Thank you, everybody. Um, we did run a little bit past our normal time, and unfortunately, Lucy has left. Um, children are precious, and he's got to be with his daughter. Thank you, everybody. Uh, just a reminder that we have another session with Lucy, which will be held at the Gibbs Business School on Thursday, the 19th of April. So any of your friends who didn't make it, um, and might want to have a little more time with we'll see that is another event running at the Gibbs Business School in Lerva on the 19th. Uh, thank you, thank you for your support. If anyone knows of anyone with a large truck, I'm getting rather desperate. We're collecting books to give to the Signature Library. I now have a garage with some 500 books, but I've got a tiny, silly little car that won't take them. Any any help is really welcome, so please come and chat to me if you can help me out. Please enjoy the evening, please come to the bar, have some drinks and network with colleagues, friends and meet new friends. Thank you. Something, but he gives me as a gift. 
Apparently, uh, well, I have uh, had one. Uh, it's quite a bit. Probably cost a bloody fortune. Oh, I don't know. She's got it in her house. If you come to me, I'm going to nip her. She doesn't. Until she says, oh, my mum's out of Do you know what time she's Where are your kids? Are they at the movie? Yeah, the one in the 19th. What time is that time? No idea. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe we should go through it. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Sorry to say. Oh my god, that is. Okay, what are you gonna? Okay, give me a light. It's fine. Just fully get it. Make it two doobies.
It's taking a long time. Uh, Is it the signal here? Can you just print a, a receipt for me? Yeah. No. Okay, cool. And where's, where's the pianist today? The what? Oh, the piano. Yeah. Has he finished his book? Oh, yeah. I'm not sure. Because he was also writing a book. I'm not sure. I don't know. Thank you very much. Cheers. Cheers.
Yes, yes, yes. yes. No, no, I'm making sure that I'm I can be tech to toe, as they say, as can Thank you. 
I'm going to hear conversations on this. Yeah, people. <laughs> that people I wouldn't 